Hello, hello, hello. This is Shauna Smith-Baker, and this is Centering Conversations, a conversation powered by Voice Vision Value. And I'm very excited to bring this conversation with L'Oreal Thompson-Payton. L'Oreal Thompson-Payton is the author of the book, Stop Waiting for Perfect, and a health and wellness reporter at Fortune. Her words have appeared in numerous outlets, including Bustle, Self, Shondaland, The Well, Plus Good, amongst others. Originally from Maryland, L'Oreal lives just outside of Chicago with her very patient husband and daughter whose laugh lights up her world. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at LT in the City and subscribe to her weekly motivational newsletter at LTInTheCity.com. This is a great conversation in which we talked about perfectionism, imposter syndrome, and many, many more topics. Centering Conversation is supported by Voice Vision Value, and it's an exclusive conversation of Conversations with Shonda. So my name is L'Oreal Thompson-Payton. I am the author of Stop Waiting for Perfect, Step Out of Your Comfort Zone and Into Your Power. I'm also a freelance health and wellness writer and motivational speaker. I live outside of Chicago with my husband and two-year-old daughter, and I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So what led you to write this book? I love that question because it reminds me of the Toni Morrison quote that I saw. And she said, if there's a story that you want to read that hasn't been written, you have to write it. And I really took that to heart. And I was like, okay, this is a call to action. Like it's Toni, who am I to disappoint her, right? Um, But I've always been an avid reader. I absolutely love self-help books. But what I found that was missing from a lot of the ones that I was reading, it was written from women, you know, who have a lot to offer, a lot of insight, a lot of perspective and I just felt as though they were like so far beyond, right? Like they have it all figured out. They have their lives together. What about those of us who are still kind of in the trenches? And that's what led me to write this book because I'm right in there with you. Yes, it's about overcoming imposter syndrome and self-doubt and perfectionism, but these are things that I still struggle with to this day. You know, it's not like I wrote this uh, masterclass solution and once you read it, you're going to be magically healed and cured. That's not the point. The point is to read it and to help, for me at least, shrink those cycles of self-doubt and imposter syndrome, perfectionism, like I mentioned before, because they can become all-consuming and overwhelming. And instead of losing three, five days, you know, to these um, that self-doubt that we carry, then maybe it can be three to five hours so you can move on and go on to do the really great, amazing things that you're fully capable of doing. Yeah, you know, I watched uh, an interview that you did with, um, was it Gail King? Yeah, yep, CBS Congratulations Mornings. Congratulations <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you so I don't much. Know why, well, I don't know why that wasn't clear in my head that it was Gail, but um, <laughs> I watched that interview. And so you have been excelling from the time that you were young. Mm-hmm. And and why I'm bringing up Gail or what I thought about when I was listening to it was um, Oprah one time had this... Uh, she was sharing a story about being a reader and being smart and the affirmations that she got. And mm-hmm. so she kept wanting sort of more of that affirmation. Yeah. And so I think that the combination of, of you being on there and you sharing the story of sort of being the valedictorian mm-hmm. and just really excelling sort of fed something in your spirit for around achievement. Can you share what mm-hmm. that was maybe doing to you or for oh. you? 
a lot. I mean, I we wouldn't be sitting here today if it weren't for that drive and that ambition. And at the same time, it comes at a cost, right? So I feel like Black women especially, and I wrote about it in the book, that scene in Scandal where Papa Pope is like really laying it into Olivia. And he's, of course, you know, like scolding her for sleeping with the president of the United States. But in that is also like the, you're a Black woman, you can't do what all these little white girls are doing. Like the message that he said to her, but also that I had heard my whole life was you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And that's just how we've been conditioned, right? Since we came out the womb, it's like, you're a Black woman, you have to be smarter, you have to work harder, you have to do this, that, and the other, because it's not enough to just be yourself, right? You're always going to be judged, you're always going to be held against these higher, impossible, ridiculous, (laughs) unrealistic standards in order to achieve in life. And that's certainly something that my parents, you know, passed down to me and my sister. I remember interviewing for a summer camp in middle school. Um, It would go on to become my alma mater at Loyola University, Maryland, but the summer camp, Loyola Leaders and Scholars, uh, you had to do an application and write an essay. And this is all when I'm like in fifth grade going into sixth grade, right? And I'm in my Easter's finest for the interview with the pantyhose and the slip and, you know, like my Easter dress in the middle of summer in the middle of Baltimore, right? So the humidity is just like gross. (laughs) Um, But when I had my portfolio, right? My three ring binder and all of these things to present as worthy enough to be in the room with these white counterparts, And that was that first introduction to the twice as good, half as much. And then it just found it like perpetuate itself throughout my career to a point where now like enough is enough, right? Like, yes, it has served me well as far as getting to the places that I've gotten. And there's, you know, a lot of success and everything tied up in that. But it comes at that cost of the stress and exhaustion, how I saw that played out with my mom and her career. And I'm just figuring out kind of now, like mid thirties, but is that worth it, right? Like, is it worth all of the stress and the exhaustion and the health problems and the heart disease and the chronic stress and the diabetes and like all of these other things that result from microaggressions, the racism, the sexism that we endure throughout our lives and our careers, trying to prove ourselves and just being like, you know what? Enough is enough. I am worthy. (laughs) You know, as I am, I don't have to earn love and respect and recognition and those sort of things, but it has been a process and I'm still unlearning that. So I was, I was more of the student. And as, as one of my kids said, you know, C's gets degrees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was more of that lane um, and felt uh, very, very smart in one way and um, really annoyed sort of with curriculum in another way. But I'm saying that because for folks that are listening, not everyone sort of was achieving at that high level at that young age but still battled either the distance between those they saw achieving and felt like, why, why not me? Mm-hmm. That, that narrative that comes in play, you know, why can't I be more studious? Why can't I be more of this? Why can't I be more of that? Yeah. Um, which I think filters into the stress that you're talking about mm-hmm. um, and the negative self-talk. And so I imagine that along the journey where you just sort of had enough, did you find a way to identify or accept more of who you were? Yes. Yes. Thanks to a lot of therapy. <laughs> Shout mm-hmm. out to therapy. And it's interesting. Shout out because, to therapy. 
And I'm so glad we're starting to talk about it more openly as a community, because I remember when I started, it was around fall 2016, beginning of 2017. And actually, I remember the um, intake person was asking, you know, like, what's the reason? Like, why? What, what brings you here? And I was at the time, I was just like, well, I'm a highly ambitious millennial in 2016, right there was the presidential election that was going on and a whole host of other things in our country at that time, because before then, I didn't think that my issues were serious enough for therapy. I didn't know any other people, period, who were going. And then I had coworkers who talked openly about their experiences with depression and anxiety. But I was like, that's not me. I I don't need therapy. We don't need therapy, right, as a community. And I remember when I started going and my aunt reached out and she was like, honey, you have a family and husband and you know, friends who love and care about you. And I was like, yes. And I'm still going to therapy, right? I was like, I can go to church on Sunday and I can right. go to therapy on Monday. I'm surprised you didn't say that part. And you got the Bible because that's, yeah. that's the one, right? Jesus, Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Just pray it away. And it's like, yes, but also there's tools that, you know, are given to us to help navigate that. And I remember in the very first session, my therapist, um, you know, I was telling her all of the things And she was like, what I'm hearing is you're not very kind to yourself, which shocked me because I'm a big sister. I was a varsity cheerleader, right? Pep talks are kind of my thing, right? (laughs) Like that's what I do. And she gave me homework, which the nerd in me loved. So I took the self-assessment or self-compassion rather assessment with uh, Dr. Kristen Neff on her website. And I think I got like a two out of five. It was like the first time I'd ever failed something in my life. And I was like, devastated. (laughs) Like, what do you mean that I'm not kind to myself? And it was so true. Like I can hype everyone else up, my sister, my best friend, and be really mean and critical of myself. And a lot of us are, there's that negative self-talk that's constantly telling us you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't deserve to be here. And that voice was very loud. And so over time, what I've come to do is name that inner critic. Mine is negative Nancy because I love alliteration. And I include in the book as well, there's a template, like a breakup letter to write to your inner critic, but first thanking them, right? And kind of reframing what that criticism means, because oftentimes that voice, whether it belongs to ourselves, our partners, our parents, or whomever, is really full of fear. And that fear wants to keep us safe, wants to keep us in our comfort zone, because that's what we know. This is safe. But that's not where the magic happens. The magic happens outside of your comfort zone. And so it's about thinking, you know, like, hey, Nancy, appreciate you. You've gotten me this far. And I know that you mean well. And in order to achieve the goals that I have for myself in my life, I'm going to need you to take a back seat. So, you know, thanks so much. Bye. <laughs> and helping people like word it however they see fit and returning to that whenever those negative self-talk um, thoughts come up, because it's not like one and done for me, at least it hasn't been. This is a recurring thing. Every time I push myself, I out of my comfort zone, whenever I level up in my career and I'm trying new things and that negative self-talk is present, but it's about facing it head on being like, okay, you know, I appreciate you. I think you, <laughs> you know what you're doing, but I've, I've got it from here and taking back that control of our lives and our creativities and our dreams, hopes, and passions. Yeah. I had a conversation with Van Jones following the podcast that I recorded with him. Mm-hmm. And um, this has always sort of stuck with me. And he said that um, essentially ego has its place, that you need enough of an ego 
to drive yourself to places that you wouldn't normally go, right? Mm, like you yes. have to have enough confidence and enough ego to like step into something that's unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. But an ego out of control is dangerous. Yes. Right? An ego imbalance is going to question, right? Because there's some humility. Like, can mm-hmm. I actually do it? Well, I'm going to go ahead and try, right? Yeah. Like the balance of those two things. And so when, do you have an answer for when is something sort of thinking through, mm-hmm. right? Like, man, I wonder if I have the skills to do this. I wonder if this is the right time. I wonder if I'm the right person. Yeah. When does that move from being a thoughtful reflection to negative self-talk? Mm. I think whenever it crosses into the, I can't and the, I'm not good enough. And you start with those negative phrases, right? Because, and I think recently too, with having published a book, there's a lot of people asking me about like how to publish a book. And I start with, well, what's your goal? <laughs> uh, Cause then that can help us determine, do we go the traditional route? Do we go the self-publishing route? Like there's not, you know, like one is better than the other. There's just different pros and cons to each of them. And helping them think through that, like, what is your story? What are you trying to achieve? What is it that you want to communicate here? Because I think everyone has a story now, whether everyone needs to write a book is a different um, kind of question. Like if there's a book length kind of story to tell there, but if you have that dream or that thought, but you talk yourself out of it before you even begin, right? That happens to a lot of us where we have these hopes and aspirations. I you know, started a podcast as well. And I was like, but am I, can I do this? And it has to be perfect before I can get started. So what did I do? I didn't start for years, right? Like I bought this podcast mic back in 2020, took all the courses, listened to the audiobooks and everything else, did a whole fellowship on it as well, but didn't launch until 2023. Why? Because I didn't take my own advice in the title of the book. I was waiting for the perfect moment. I was waiting till I had all the tools and the knowledge. And the thing is, if you wait for that, you'll be waiting forever because that perfect moment doesn't exist and it's better to start now start messy and kind of reiterate along the way because you can always improve something but you can't improve nothing and that's something that I as a perfectionist that also kind of manifests itself as a procrastinator (laughs) in that regard right because I want to wait until something's perfect before I release it and that's just not possible but when you have those thoughts where you know you have the dream the hope the goal the vision and you talk yourself out of it before you even begin, like that's the negative self-talk because the inner you, your inner child or creative, whatever that other voice is saying, like, I, I want to try at least. I want to see how far this can go. But that self-doubt will tell you like, girl, don't even start because it's safe. If we don't try, we can't embarrass ourselves. We can't fail. That's right. what we're afraid of. That's the ego is afraid of failure. But that's inevitable. That's part of the process. That's just part of being a human being, you know? It is. I've never really embraced the concept of professionalism. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that has come from because I have sort of an ease around it, right? Like it either Mm -hmm. worked or it didn't. Yeah. It was either for me or it's not. Like I tried it. I did not conquer. Someone Mm -hmm. else will, right? Like I'm sort of like easy about most most Mm -hmm. things. There's a couple of things that like I can get a little bit anal about. But I do think that there's, there is a liberation that could come with not having to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that are navigating life, whether or not it's family or work, 
or what, whatever space they're in that are, are carrying the load by themselves. Yes. And I think a piece of it is, is that they, you know, you sort of contain it and feel like I can do it or it has to be done a certain way. That shows up a lot in the workplace where mm-hmm. people sort of want to define not just like where we're trying to go, which should be a shared outcome, but they want to define all the steps of how you get there, right? Yeah. Instead of allowing for people to sort of layer in the way that they see um, and the way that they may work best. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this thing of um, perfectionism is, or how do you see it showing up in the workplace? Is it creating less belonging, like in this place of diversity, equity, and belonging? Mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you think that perfectionism compromises that? I do. I think that it is a one-way ticket to burnout. And it's interesting because I literally just last week or a few weeks before wrote this, um, I have a weekly newsletter and I had resigned from my full-time job as a health and wellness reporter in September and took some time and then finally wrote about it. But I was like, what happens when a health and wellness reporter burns out, right? Because those aren't words that are supposed to go together. <laughs> I should know better. Um, I've written stories. I've interviewed experts. I've read books on burnout. And yet I still felt victim to it. And the part of that is the perfectionism because it's like, especially as a Black woman in professional spaces, a lot of times, especially white dominated spaces, you're already othered. And so people are already looking at you in a certain way and you're already being held and judged to high standards. And what I found is that like the goalpost was constantly moving, right? Like I, I did all the goals. I reached the KPIs. I have, you know, all the things. And then it was like, well, that's not good enough. We need you to do X, Y, and Z in addition to that. And me being the overachiever that I am and having some, you know, place so much weight and value and titles and salary and these kind of like external validators and markers of success bought into it, got really obsessed (laughs) and burned all the way out to the point that my therapist over the summer was like, I'm starting to notice some depressive symptoms. And I'm like, yep, yep, that's my cue. Okay. Because no, no job for me is worth my mental health and wellness and physical well-being. And so I made the decision to step back, go back into full-time freelance writing to kind of recalibrate essentially my nervous system. But I saw this chart on LinkedIn and I'm going to share it with you as well, because it will be, it's a really powerful visual representation of the 12 stages of burnout. And the first one is, you know, like you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to achieve. And then the obsession happens, right? Where it's like this goal or bust, like I have to get the promotion or else, and I have to do X, Y, Z. And you start to neglect yourself and your needs and your self-care and your family and your other relationships. And there were 12 stages. I found myself at a good, like 11.5, right? Like I didn't reach the fallout at your desk, like passed out from, you know, burnout kind of thing, but the depression was certainly there. The anxiety was there. And a lot of that was tied to, despite having written a whole book about it, like I was still buying into that myth that perfection offers, especially for Black women, that if you work hard enough, if you prove yourself, you'll be accepted, you'll get the awards, you'll get the accolades, you'll get the promotions. And then what I just realized was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how hard I work. There's going to always be something else, right? They're going to constantly move the goalposts. And so I'm going to choose myself, my health, and my happiness because I have a daughter who's watching me. And sure, she's only two. 
but what I do and how I move about the world and how I role model rest and softness and vulnerability and all these sort of things is going to get passed on to her because she's even now like mimicking my behavior and watching what I do. And I don't want to pass on a legacy of burnout to her. It's it's interesting the work twice as hard to go half as far statement. Also, in these centering conversations, um, you know, powered by voice, vision, value, there have been of the, you know, eight conversations or so that I've recorded, I would say four or better have have made that statement. Mm -hmm. This idea of working twice as hard and the last conversation was essentially for the goalposts to move. Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's something that we were given as a way to one, tell us life ain't fair. Yeah. Number two, to um, help foster a drive. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you're not ever going to catch up. No, we're not designed to. The system is rigged against us and it was. it took me 35 years to figure it out. <laughs> but better late than ever, I guess. Yeah. Did that feel painful? Absolutely. Yes. It was soul crushing because, you know, I am the straight A student. I got the perfect attendance. I was on the honor roll, Dean's list, so forth and so on. And it's so it's interesting because that's my whole childhood and academic career and journalism as well. Like there are awards and the accolades and have gotten those. And so you, um, you want that, right? We're human. You want the external validation. You want to know that, your work matters. You want to be recognized. And I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, right? Because we're human. It's when it becomes an obsession and it takes over everything else and you yeah. start to it's lose when that yourself. Becomes, that's how, like, that's how you see your value. Through yeah, other exactly. Value of you. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like I have my Peloton bike behind me. And in the opening of the book, I write about losing my 685 day blue dot streak in For those who are not on Peloton, it's every time you log in, do a workout, whether that's on the bike or yoga, strength, whatever the class is, you earn a blue dot, like the adult equivalent of gold stars. And I was like, hell, come hell or high water, I am going to keep this streak alive. And I did for two years and some change. And then a month after, like I even did a meditation on the way to the hospital the morning of the C-section. That should have been a red flag to me at that point, but you know, your girl, your girl's obsessed. And then I lost the streak about a month after she was born. We were running around different doctor's appointments and everything. Midnight came and went and I realized, oh my gosh, I didn't log in today. And I cried real tears because I felt that worth that you talk about that, like my self-worth was tied up in this streak. Right. And that was unhealthy. And I realized after a couple of therapy sessions, <laughs> um, I'm still L'Oreal. I'm still worthy of love and respect and all of these great things with or without my Peloton streak. Like like the intent of it to get it, to help me move my body, to help live a healthier lifestyle is good. And yet the way that I went about it came with a lot of stress and anxiety and proved to be unhealthy. So now I'm reworking that relationship that I have with um, workout goals and different things like that to the point where it's like, okay, is this healthy? Is this serving me? And what is the what is the end goal? And knowing though that I am worthy with or without whatever this streak is telling me. I just recently transitioned from a role, and you know I've been a CEO and president of an organization. I just left a chief impact role, mm-hmm. 
and people will come, you know, like, well, the reaction has been very, very positive. I've never really fully been attached to a title mm-hmm. or um, a role, but for many people, they are. And I think yeah. that what we're talking about here is identity. Mm, yes. And um, identity being more connected to who you are and how you be right mm-hmm. in the world versus a title and what you do. Yeah. And so does the book offer advice um, in that way around identity? Yeah, there is, I mean, going back to Toni Morrison, right? Because I mean, she's one of our literary ancestors and the day that she died, I was just like, well, what do we do now? (laughs) What do I do? How do I write? How do I move about in the world? And at the time I was working at an education nonprofit doing PR and communications, um, which I had switched to a couple of years prior after burning out doing full-time journalism. So there's a trend here with burnout and Mm -hmm. (laughs) journalism. I hear it. I hear the trend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like sitting there and one of uh, the chief of staff actually to the CEO had made me this beautiful rendering like illustration of Tony and I had it propped up on my desk. And I'm over here writing my pitches and my press releases and everything. And I go back over and look and Tony's looking at me with that kind of, you know, the like the elder black woman judgy eyes, kind of like, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. and that's, mm-hmm. I felt her <laughs> judging me in that picture. And because it was like, I knew that I was supposed to be a full-time writer and author and pursue that dream. I was sticking with the safety of a stable communications role that offered more money, right? Because, you know, journalism and writing isn't the most lucrative. And I just felt her judging me because I had wrapped up a lot of identity in the salary and the titles. I was director of communications for a national education nonprofit. And she was like, girl, you're supposed to be writing books. You're supposed to be writing stories. Like that's what you're supposed to be doing. And that is enough. I think in her death, because I know that she was an editor before, you know, worked in publishing and everything like that, but we all know her, you know, as, as an author and then her writing and somewhere in my head, like the titles meant more, like you had to, especially in journalism, climb the mass head to become editor in chief and be in charge. And that was my dream job for as soon as I entered before I even entered journalism, back when I was still reading teen magazines, you know, in middle school, like it was editor in chief for bus because that I thought was the role where I could impact the most change and make a difference and make magazines more diverse than they were when I was growing up. But then as the closer I got to the top of the mass head and seeing all of the editors and executive editors and so forth, it's like they're spending more time in business meetings than they are writing. And writing is my first love. That is my passion. That's my joy. That's what I know I am put on this earth to do. But is it enough in quotation marks to be a writer? And I felt Tony telling me, yes, yes, it is. (laughs) That led me to going back to freelance and then eventually, you know, joining another uh, newsroom, but now coming back to um, full-time freelancing as an author, because it's like, that is enough. I don't need all of the titles. I need to write stories that are going to help impact Black women and girls in a positive way. And that's what I have been able to do. And I know that's what- Why was that important to you? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, like going back to the teen magazines, like I grew up in the Britney, Christina Aguilera era, and I saw these skinny white pop stars who didn't look like me. Right. So this is the early, not early mid nineties, early two thousands. And it's before black girl magic is trending. It's before Michelle is our first lady. It's before Beyonce is Beyonce, right? She's still in destiny's child. And so 
they're, I love Brandy and Monica, but like they weren't on the cover of YM or Teen People. And these, that was my, before social media existed, like portal into the world. And I didn't see myself and my stories reflected in those pages. And I liked writing, pretty good at it. <laughs> when I got to high school, I realized I was editor-in-chief of the student newspaper and I would write a monthly column that my words, in addition to being cathartic for me, like just helping me process and make sense of the world, could also help other people. That's when the light bulb went off of like, this is what, this is what I want to do. I want to use my gift of writing and storytelling to help other people especially other Black women and girls feel less alone, especially in a world that is constantly telling us that we're not enough. You know, you're, you're telling a story of representation or the lack of representation and, and role modeling. And while there are more Black women, while there's more diversity, certainly there's more um, conversations around the role of diversity in space. Why, why should we, philanthropy outside mm -hmm. of, you know, why should um, folks listening be thinking about representation? It matters. It matters. I think about last night, even I was reading um, Hair Love. They came out with a new uh, baby board book version of ABCs mm -hmm. and reading that to my daughter. And she was pointing, like it was a page where the girl has her Afro out and she had her little puffs in. And I was like, see her hair, it looks like your hair. And she's making that connection, like pointing to the girl in the book and pointing to her hair. And that's important, right? That even at two, she sees herself reflected in the books that she's reading and the shows that she's watching. We're a big Gracie's Corner fan uh, family <laughs> in this house. And that matters. It's media, yes. And you can view it as entertainment and it is, but it also shapes the way that we think about ourselves. And I remember last summer, even sitting around the table at the uh, Visions Voice of Value Chicago chapter and one of my mentors and friends, uh, Monique Brunson-Jones, who had invited me in and introduced me to everyone. And it was so great to be a fly on the wall at one of the most powerful tables in Chicago at that moment, I have to say, right? Like here we have executives and CEOs and other C-suite leaders of these local nonprofits and foundations who are Black women, are in charge, are at the helm, are making change. And one of the women talked about how when she got started in the field, that wasn't the case, right? There was not a table of a dozen Black women in these powerful positions sharing stories with each other. And it was like a sisterhood in that moment, right? Because it's like, yes, they have the titles and everything else. And they're getting requests, you know, right and left all day because of the positions that they're in. But when they got to this table, they were able to let their hair down and be themselves be vulnerable, right, about the challenges that they're going through as well, because that is a safe space. They can drop the cape. They didn't have to be the strong Black woman in that moment and in that space because they were surrounded by other Black women who got it. And that's why representation matters in every industry that we're in, but especially those that are giving back, right, because you want to make sure that you understand and you represent, like you can reflect the communities that you are serving, as well, that the people who are on the receiving end can look into the leadership of these different organizations and like, okay, she looks like me. She came from the same neighborhood as me. She gets it. And I know she's got us and that matters. Yeah. Voice, vision, value. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for that community of, of women. I've been in those spaces. I convened uh, the space here in the Twin Cities. Okay. What has surprised me throughout my career 
is when we have, when I've been part of those spaces, when I've helped create those space. There's always, there's in my experience, there's always been someone that comes in and says, I don't remember the last time I've been in a room where it was just us. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, even if there was no agenda, I'm getting everything I need just by yeah. being in the space. Yeah. There's something really profound about that because it it, it really demonstrates what we're holding. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that we don't know what we're holding. And I think that's a piece of the conversation that we're having is I think, I think being in space like that is part of your wellness plan. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even with Peloton, they have a black girl magic group and it's virtual. Like everyone's all over the place. But even in a Facebook group, I'm like, oh, they get it. Like I feel seen in other spaces throughout my life. I did a yoga retreat once that was for women of color exclusively. And that was powerful because I've been in spaces, especially here in Chicago, you know, you're at your Lululemon studios and (laughs) other places. And once I was at a yoga, it might've been a bar class. I don't remember, but like this white woman had asked me to move my mat, asked me to shrink myself I got in there before her like I was in my place (laughs) and she asked me to move my mat and I was just like so aghast of just like the audacity the caucasity really (laughs) of that Mm -hmm. request to then go to this mountaintop in Georgia and I'm looking around and I'm surrounded by other beautiful black and brown women and no one asked me to move my mat like we could all breathe literally there was like the first exhale we did in the sister circle that we form could move mountains because of all that we had been carrying to the top of that mountaintop. And then we were able to exhale and it was so beautiful. Part of what I'm trying to uncover in these conversations is what exists in space that people don't understand. Right. So Mm -hmm. if we just break this down a little bit, there are going to be people that are like, what's wrong with asking her to move the mat? right? But it hits different, right? Yes. It just hits different. Yeah. It's like, it just hits different. I don't mm-hmm. want to put words in your mouth, but there are, are, there's experiences that we have throughout the day that might be hidden to someone who doesn't have the experiences uh-huh. or that has an eye that has not been educated around issues of race and class and privilege and power. Yeah. yeah are you able to sort of articulate what is happening in space that, that doesn't allow for the release of that exhale? Oh yeah. I mean, there's just a, you enter and we'll, you know, stick with the yoga kind of metaphor, the, you know, that example, and you're in a studio in a part of town where you're the only black person in the room, a, and so that automatically creates kind of this othering experience and then I reflect back, you know, to that instance when she asked me to move my mat and it was, I, it was, it was a hard day, right? Like at work, I was tired. I was over this. Like I had to go through so much to even get to the class in the first place to get there on time to mm-hmm. set up and everything like that. And this is supposed to be a place of rest and recovery, right? Like this is supposed to be a place where I can pour into myself and be whole and prioritize my wellness. And even in that space, I'm being looked at as an inconvenience. I'm being asked to shrink myself by moving and getting out of her way. And she might even think anything of it, probably doesn't even remember this moment where, you know, it's stuck with me 
for years because it was just like, how dare, right? Like, how dare you ask me to shrink myself to make you more comfortable? That was just an example in real life, like in the world, but that happens in the boardrooms. It happens in different office spaces across the country, right? Um, It happens in every level, I feel like, an entity of life where Black women are being asked to somehow make themselves smaller, quieter, less threatening to our white counterparts. And that is, um, and other women of color, sometimes I have to, you know, let's call a spade a spade, (laughs) where, yeah, just being seen, um, you know, as other, as a threat, as some, you know, inconvenience to be dealt with. And it is dehumanizing because it doesn't allow for you to take up space to, and even, you know, I I didn't move my mat. I wasn't going to, (laughs) Um, but now like that has tainted this whole experience of this class that was supposed to be something that was going to help me relax. Like now I'm tense and I'm upset and I'm angry and I'm frustrated. And she just went about, you know, her business or whatever. And so it's like that kind of thing that sort of those sort of microaggressions that we deal with um, day in and day out. And I saw something recently to talk about like even microaggressions is kind of an interesting word because it's not like it minimizes right, the experience. Like it might be micro in an act, but like the consequences are, are not like they're much yeah. bigger than mm-hmm. that. And it's like, you know, a thousand paper cuts that all adds up and that becomes, you know, an experience um, in and of itself. And so, yeah, it was, I'm still apparently very, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, bring that back up in therapy. <laughs> you know what? I mean, I appreciate you, you taking us through that because um, I think it's important because I think in our experience, because we experienced it from the time we were young. Yes. It is a way of being in life mm-hmm. where, where you, you have those encounters sometimes all day, mm-hmm. but you have been told conditioned to just move along you yeah. don't fight every Keep the battle. peace you don't want to be the, the angry peace, black woman right <laughs> whoever's in charge right like whatever mm-hmm. all the things that we were taught and learned but that it does take a toll and it minimizes our experience but i also don't know if we have an ability to articulate it fully i don't know mm-hmm. if we always know how to articulate yeah either what we're experiencing or the impact of it Mm -hmm. so that we can bridge deeper understanding. And if you really are in the space, you're like, I don't have time to be teaching people, but (laughs) right. Cause that's also exhausting. But the reality is, is that we're not going to make space better if people really don't understand what our experiences are. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really love about um, this conversation series and the work of voice, vision, value, which is to sort of open up to expand worldview and the possibilities of number one, or the realities, the possibilities and the realities, number one, of what Black women are contributing mm-hmm. in terms of their leadership. And number two, the possibilities of where the leadership could go have we not been hindered by all the things that are sort of suppressing. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> suppressing us. And, and to, to validate the experiences that we have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, especially that second part, like what could have been, right? Like I think yeah. back to, I think it was January, 2017, and it was at another nonprofit. Um, and we all know what was happening in January, 2017. I think it was like 
the week of probably the inauguration of he who shall not be named (laughs) and that there was the Muslim ban happening and just like so much going on. And my supervisor was like, I just, you're not smiling as much as you used to. And I was like, well, there's not really much to smile about right now. Like, is there, (laughs) you know, but like just that, uh, and I didn't have the words for any of these experiences, the yoga studio and that interaction with my manager at the time um, to know that, you know, the microaggressions and kind of like the coded language there and what was meant and all these, I didn't know that I was younger and I didn't have the vocabulary. It wasn't until later on that I learned, okay, like this is what that means. And I'm grateful for the language because it helped to validate that experience or else you can also start to feel a little bit like, is it me? Am I the, am I yeah. the problem? Um, and I end up leaving that organization for a variety of reasons. But I do think sometimes I'm like, what would have happened if I felt more supported? I was poured into, I was given opportunities. I was promoted into, you know, different positions and everything like that. If I didn't have to work twice as hard, right? Like what could have been? And I see that happening across industries, Black women who are being pushed out, driven out of these different organizations and companies because we are sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Like tired of being underpaid, overworked. Like it's just this reckoning that is happening. Um, And there's a privilege, of course, in that as well, to be able to leave an environment where you don't feel supported to go off and like do um, your own thing. And I'm very much aware of that and that not everyone has that privilege as well. Um, And yet, it breaks my heart when I hear from friends and colleagues who are in these positions and companies where they don't feel supported and they feel like they don't have any other option because it's like draining. It's draining. Yeah. There's an undergirding of that conversation. Um, Do you know what you would have needed to have been able to feel uh, more satisfied and to have stayed in that role? Well, more money for one. (laughs) Money, money, money. (laughs) Okay. Um, Especially, and it's interesting because, you know, there's the equal pay day and how each, um, it's different for different groups, right? So white women and Asian women are making more than black women, Latina women, indigenous women, and so forth. And the fact that I saw that played out on my own team at a nonprofit for girls was just like, what are we doing here <laughs> actually, right? Like we're supposed to be empowering the next generation, equipping them with the skills they need, advocating for them. And yet on our own team, that disparity is in play. And so, I mean, everyone talks about well, money doesn't buy happiness, all this other things, yada, yada. It kind of does. <laughs> it does yeah. matter. If right? it doesn't like, buy happiness, what it will do is it will amplify disparity. Exactly. Right. And what I think you're talking about is alignment. Yes. Right. Right. Like, do you mean what you say? Right. Yeah. And if you did, then why am I in this position? Right. Mm -hmm. And so it it creates distrust. Yes. Yes. So you didn't trust it because of the disparity of pay that was playing out in an organization. Yeah. That was supposed to be doing, but, and I believed it and, you know, thought that of all places. Right. And 
that's been a trend throughout my career. And I've advocated, I have lobbied, I have always, <laughs> except for the first job, because I didn't know any better. Um, and maybe the first couple, but like have negotiated salaries after a certain time, asked for the promotion. And I have the receipts, like I do the work and I, I am deserving. And it's always being told, you know, wait your turn or not yet, or we need to see this or actually that. And it's very discouraging because, you know, I am a rule follower, or at least I have been. <laughs> and I played by the rules and I did what I was supposed to do that I was told that girls like me are supposed to do. And then I look around, I'm like, well, where did that get me exactly? Mm-hmm. And it's like waiting for permission, waiting for all of these things, the external validation, the promotions, the salary raises and everything like that. And having someone else determine and dictate your success and finally getting fed up and being like, well, I can do bad all by myself, but that's the thing. I won't like, I'm going to do <laughs> the last part. I won't. <laughs> I won't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I'm hearing there though, is that it is about a work environment that can nurture their potential, yes. right? Not just tell you what you're unable to do. hmm but to provide space for what you are capable of doing and then and then being able to roadmap the the possibility of um where you can be within that organization. Oh yeah. I mean as we talk a lot of, all the time, you know, it's not enough just to have a mentor. You need sponsors. You need someone who's in the room where it happens, who is going to mention your name in the rooms that you're not in and put you up for different opportunities, recommend you for different things. And I'm grateful to have a few of those in my career now. And it would be really great if companies themselves, like that's built into your professional development plan, that that's part of the performance review, that there is as much give and receive, right? That it's not just like, here's what we need to do for us, but also here's what we can do for you. And we're committed to doing that. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to give you the resources, right? Because I wrote a story for Fortune about the glass cliff and how we saw, especially in the last couple of years, starting with that summer of 2020 and the quote unquote racial reckoning, right? All of these black women who were promoted into C-suite positions, but not giving the tools that they needed in order to make, or the time also, right? It was like, hey, you have six months to turn over this whole company and that's not realistic. And it's just almost setting us up for failure, right? There's like, what the hell? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You you perfectly segued into where I wanted to go, which is around the glass cliff. So mm-hmm. number one, what is a glass cliff? So it's essentially the cousin to the glass ceiling, right? We know that, you know, there's that limit or whatever, the ceiling that's been put in place, how far women can get and exist. And it's like the glass cliff though, is like, okay, we're going to put you in that position, right? You're going to break the ceiling. Now you're on this cliff and you're essentially pushed over because you're not given time, tools, resources, financial or otherwise in order to achieve the goals that they put in place with 2020, especially you saw a lot of DEI hires across industries, right? Um, Because that was the trendy thing to do, right? Like, oh, look at us. We have a black woman in leadership. And then what happened two years later, three years later, now they're burnt out (laughs) Um, or they, you know, were given parameters that weren't realistic. They weren't given time to turn around a company and a lot of these women have left and yeah. I don't blame them. Yeah. I'm the board chair of an organization um, that had gone through some organizational turmoil, then um, hired or promoted or um, confirmed a black woman as the CEO. Mm-hmm. 
one of the first things that um, I talked about was this is a this is a perfect glass cliff scenario where yeah. like things have been challenged, right? The environment needs some repair, mm-hmm. right? We put a woman, a woman of color in place and expect for that magic to work and put yeah. everything back in order. And the magic only works if we're all committed to getting it in order. Yes. Right. And so what is required of organizations when you promote, when you place, because this is happening all the way through where people want to hire from community that haven't been in positions before, Mm -hmm. but they don't implement a new training program. Right. Right. Or they don't take in consideration that they may not know the norms of the space. Mm -hmm. They might need some support, that sponsorship, that coaching, um, that mentorship that allows for them to not just be, but feel accepted and belonging in that space Mm -hmm. to that CEO role where you come in and perhaps you've never been a CEO before, or you haven't been in a space Well, you need, you need, you need support. A hundred percent. And it's, and Minda uh, Hart, who I interview in the story as well, talked about exactly that. Like we need executive coaches. We need budget to build a team. We need therapy, right? Because our mental health is also instrumental, um, crucial to our success and our well-being. And uh, Kyra, who's one of my mentors and close friends as well, said, you know, and we need time. We need time to get, we need grace, right? The same grace that you give all these other CEOs and founders, et cetera, and the money that you give them as well. We need that too. And so it's not like we can come in and wave a magic wand, use our black girl magic to all of a sudden magically, you know, like abracadabra. And now we're, <laughs> we're, you know, all good. Um, there's so many tools that are needed, the resources pouring into and it has to be a joint effort, right? You can't just put this person in a position and be like, hey, you got it. Okay, bye. Um, and carry on. Like it is a a joint effort, is a team effort, and it has to be in order for everyone to succeed. Yeah. Shout out to to Mindy and her book, The Memo. And I think she's written another book. She's been so many I'm trying to get on her level. Like she's <laughs> a boss. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to get on your level. I just need to get <laughs> one book out of myself. Yes. I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and squeeze one out. When you hear the words voice, vision, value, mm-hmm. like what do you feel? Like what comes up for you um, for Black women leading? Yeah, a lot of warm and fuzzies. Like I just instantly transport back to that dinner and being in that conversation and also feeling a lot of gratitude, right? Because I know, I can imagine at least the sacrifice that was made on multiple levels, right? The Black women who come before me, the Black women that were there that day, you know, what they had to do to get their um, time away from their families, their loved ones. And there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into it. And it's all for the greater good because they believe in the organizations that they're leading and the work that they're doing. And it's inspiring. Like I left that dinner and I was like, hell yeah, I want to take over. I don't want to be a CEO. (laughs) Um, Because that seems super stressful. Um, But I was so inspired by their tenacity, their resilience, their softness in that space, right, as well, being vulnerable with each other. And so I always flash back like to that moment in time and how it was very unique, like to be in a room 
with that much power at it and having it be black women who look like me was like you can I would have loved oh my gosh if like 25 year old me <laughs> could have seen that I've been in that room 15 year old me 10 year like to know what's possible it was just like oh it's it was black girl magic embodied and like in have person you been in a space like that before I don't think I mean I did work at Jet and Ebony so I'm thinking back to like some of those but I was you know a lowly junior editor so I wasn't you know in the places like in the the powerful rooms right in the magical rooms where it happens um so I feel like that was the that was the first yeah when I think about it I think it was the first one I only said that because you referred back to your 10 year old self or your 15 year old self Mm -hmm. what I think um what I appreciate right if I pull back to you know teen magazine and other things right the representation Mm -hmm being mm-hmm. able to see the power of even being vulnerable. Vulnerability is power. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Right? That wasn't, we don't do vulnerability. And I mean, I still haven't seen, <laughs> there's been moments where my mom's invulnerable, but that was not the norm right? right. To, do, to do that. So yeah. Vulnerability yeah. is power and vulnerability will get you what you need to like get to the next place. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot just be strong and all the things. And I think the pretending that you are is actually where the anxiety, the Mm -hmm. perfectionism, all those things sort of come in to play. It's much more complicated than that, but I think we're, we're holding expectations that we have been raised around. We're holding Mm -hmm. expectations that community has, we're holding our own expectations and we're trying to play a game. um, Most of the time that wasn't really made for us to play in. Mm -hmm. And so it's a complicated scenario. And so I I just appreciate you weighing in to these conversations, the offering of of the book, the knowledge, and and frankly, you sharing your burnout story, because there's a lot of us that are operating with short tempers, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Anxiety, we are um, sleepy, we're isolating, we're doing a number of things that... um, if we were to pull back, perhaps go to the therapist, get around other people, um, we would be able to identify as burnout. And it doesn't necessarily mean they need to quit their jobs, but it does mm-hmm. mean that there's an opportunity to just get healthier. Yes. Yeah. Take a sabbatical if that's something your company offers um, or self-imposed one, a medical leave. You know, there's all, there's, there are options, but yeah, to your point about the short tempers, like the irritability was one of the symptoms that my therapist mentioned, right? One of the depressive symptoms, fatigue, irritability, no longer enjoying the things that you used to. Like I would pick up my daughter from daycare and be too tired to really like engage with her and play with her the way that I wanted because I was so burnt out. And it was just like, I, something has to change. Like this is not sustainable. It's not how I want to live. And something my therapist encourages me as well. It's just like, well, when you find yourself in these situations and these different challenges, like think to yourself, what would you want Violet, my, my daughter to do? And she's like, you need to do that. You need to do it so that it gives her a blueprint, a roadmap, a way of being something to like see as a possibility and then a reality. Yeah, I love that because we're modeling. You said your daughter already emulates and this whole idea of if you're not sharing where your hardship is. Mm-hmm. Other people aren't learning like how to survive it. Like they're yeah. just doing it themselves, including including your kids. And so 
Thank you for that. Thank you for what you've shared in your book. If people were interested in, in following up and finding your book, where would they go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Stop Waiting for Perfect is available wherever books are sold. There's also the audio book, which I narrate myself. And you can keep in touch and learn more about me at ltinthecity.com. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us.